Well, good morning. Glad to be here with you this morning. We are finally going to finish the first chapter of the book of James. So if you have your copy of God's Word, I'd invite you to turn there. How many of you like getting pay raises? Yeah, I like pay raises too. The unfortunate thing about pay raises is often when you're getting your job performance evaluation, across the table they'll slide a piece of paper to you where you have to evaluate yourself. And I hate that process of self-evaluation. It is miserable, and uh, it's difficult because you want to be honest, but at the same time, if you're honest, you're afraid it's going to affect how much of a raise you're going to get. <laughs> and so, uh, so typically, I think I do a pretty good job, but you know the employer may, may think otherwise. Well, I, I say all that because this morning we are going to do a little bit of a, a self-evaluation uh, for your performance here as believers. And uh, we don't like that very much, but it's a necessary thing to look into our own hearts and see how we're doing in following Christ. And so uh, we are in James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, and uh, we'll read that in just a moment. But I wanted to kind of review for a moment what we talked about last time, because this text today builds on the previous text. And so last time I preached, we talked about the need to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude ourselves. Remember that? And uh, we said that this was the major point of James' letter. This is the point uh, that we need to implement what it is we profess. We need to be practicing what we profess as believers. Uh, what point is it? to say that we have faith in Christ, but have no works to back it up. And so that is James' major uh, discussion point. And we talked about two ways to avoid the trap of self-delusion in this area. And James says, listen, if you, if you say you're a believer, but you don't do any faith-directed works, then you're deluding yourself. And so the discussion we talked about last time was that we needed to serve God faithfully by, by proving ourselves to be doers of the Word. Uh, we can't just listen to sermons and teaching and take in all this information and all this wonderful truth and not implement it in our lives. Otherwise, we are simply deluding ourselves into believing that we are somehow being obedient because we're listening to the Word. And the Word of God must fundamentally change us. If we hear it, we can't just listen to it. We need to hear it and respond to it. And uh, saving faith results in faith-directed works and service to God and to others. That's what the Word does in our hearts. It's supposed to change us. It's supposed to sanctify us. It's supposed to make us more like Christ. And so we don't want to be those who just take in the Word in large mass volumes and never do anything with it. Uh, and so James uh, really was, was kind of uh, stinging us and telling us uh, that we need to put into practice what we preach. Secondly, uh, we needed to see ourselves clearly, you'll recall. So we needed to serve God faithfully. We need to see ourselves clearly. By our response to the Word of God, uh, we can look at ourselves through the lens of Scripture 
and either walk away unfazed, untouched, and forget what we just saw, or we can, or we can look intently at the Scriptures and ourselves and embrace them uh, by becoming what James calls an effectual doer. A doer of a work, literally. An effectual doer of what the Scripture says. And the promise that James makes to us is that we will be blessed in those faith-directed works if we walk in obedience. So today, we're going to drill down deeper. We're actually going to take a look into our own hearts by exploring what is what it is that we truly believe um, and are we doing what we say we believe? We need to look at our own hearts here. We're going we're gonna to undergo a test to see if our allegiances have actually changed. We talked about last week, are, are we deluding ourselves into believing that we're following Christ uh, when we're really not? Or are we deceiving ourselves in our own heart? Uh, And that's what James is after here in this final part of chapter 1. He says, uh, verse 26, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Let's take a moment to pray and ask God's help in understanding this text. Father, please help us to evaluate our own hearts this morning. May your Spirit, illuminate our minds to understand the text of Scripture that James has written for us here. Uh, Father, we know that your Spirit has written through him, and that what we hold in our hands is the Word of God. Please uh, convict our hearts, bring change uh, where necessary, and help us to be uh, effectual doers of your Word, as James says. Uh, May our appraisal of ourselves be honest. And, uh, Father, may, may we just uh, implement changes where they need to be changed in the power of your Spirit, not, not in some sort of self-effort. Uh, Lord, we want to be more like Christ, and we pray your help in doing that. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So this morning we're going to see three evidences that your allegiances have changed from yourself and the world to God and his priorities. Three evidences. And this is, in essence, as I said, a a self-proctored exam. Only you and God know the results of this examination. I'm not going to pass around a sheet and have you fill it out. I'm not going to grade you on this. Um, Only you know where you need to change as the Spirit brings conviction. So what are these evidences uh, of changed allegiances? Well, the first one is what James is is saying is a a controlled tongue. A controlled tongue, verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, 
but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. This is actually uh, what's known as a first-class condition in the Greek. And what that means is it's kind of an if-then sort of proposition. Uh, If this is true, then this is true. And so uh, what it means basically is uh, this is already being practiced uh, in the church as James is addressing it. Either by an individual or by multiple individuals, this is something that's already going on. And so it it could be translated since. Uh, Since somebody thinks himself to be religious, um, then this, right? Uh, So you, you might translate it, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, but does not restrain his tongue and instead deceives his heart, then... This one's religion is vain. It's empty. It's worthless. It's meaningless. Pointless. Uh, Religion is the word threskos in the Greek, and and the word rarely shows up in biblical usage. And uh, when you read the word religion, does it make you cringe a little bit? It makes makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Uh, There may or may not... Many say there's no exact English equivalent for the Greek word here. Uh, Suffice it to say, in Paul's writings, he uses it uh, to describe Phariseeism over in Acts 26.5. Over in Colossians 1.20, I'm sorry, in Colossians 2.18, he uses it to, to describe the worship of angels. So it seems what James is after here in the context is sort of an outward uh, ritualistic uh, ceremony kind of a thing. He's, he's looking at the outside. If somebody says they have religious practices, but their tongue uh, betrays them, then they're, then they're deluded, they're deceived. Well, why? Why is one's religion worthless if they can't bridle their tongue? Well, James is going to address this issue a lot further in chapter 3, but he's introducing the topic here. Uh, Just think back when we talked about everyone, verse 119, should be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, right? This falls under the category of slow to speak. And he's saying... um, we need, to, we need to bridle the tongue. This, this person who thinks they're religious and can't get control of their tongue, they need to bridle it. Um, and a bridle, I don't know much about horse riding. Let's, let's face it, I'm a city boy, uh, born and raised. Uh, but some of you know that a bridle is, uh, and a bit is what's placed in the horse's mouth to control it and to guide it, Right? You put the bit in the mouth and you pull on the reins and it turns the horse's head and it controls the horse and where it's going. And so the picture here is of an unruly horse that needs a bit and bridle held by the rider to control it. If somebody says they're religious, but they they don't have control over their tongue, they need somebody to put a bit and bridle in there. So James is talking clearly about sins of the tongue. 
And we know Jewish wisdom literature addresses this topic ad nauseum, um, particularly in the books of Psalms, uh, Job, and the Proverbs. And just listen to a few of these, right? Uh, Psalm 3730. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. Psalm 52, 2. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor, a worker of deceit. Psalm 52, 4. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. So you see, there's a... There's a lot of power in the tongue. The wisdom literature realizes that. You know, we say sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never harm me. Is that true? No. Name, calling people's names and deceiving and lying and and speaking um, ruthlessly to people, it injures. It does injure. There's a strong contrast in the text Uh, Instead of controlling his tongue, this man, or it could be just as well applied to a woman, this person instead, it says, deceives their own heart. And this this idea of deception takes us right back up to verses uh, 22 to 25. Uh, Being doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves, right? Right? Only now James is talking about the inside of the man or woman. In other words, this person has a a cardiac condition that needs immediate attention. We know that biblically speaking, the heart was considered to be the main organ, right, of psychic and spiritual life. It described one's affections, their, their desires, it would, it's what drove them, it's what motivated them, it's the will. And this person needs to wake up. The tongue is, is reflective of what's on the inside, right? Uh, Jesus talked about this. It's not what comes from the outside in that defiles the man. It's what comes from the inside out. And the tongue is just a symptom of what's going on in the heart. If one's speech is treacherous and deceitful, then what must the inside be like? If your speech is angry and hurtful, then what is the condition of your heart? You do not be fooled, beloved. Again, Much more to say about this in chapter 3, but but this should at least get the motor running on this subject of the tongue and its dangers. That's what James is after. He's just kind of lubing the engine here. Do our words hurt others? Can they cause division? Can they cause strife? Can they cause hurt and damage? Absolutely. 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 Uh, One writer, Derek Bingham, he said, A suicide's body was found floating in a river, and a note was written on her person. The note had only two words written on it. Quote, they said, end quote. Do we realize that a word from our tongues, uh, what a word from our tongues can do? 
It can wreck a local church. It can mar a child for life. It can disrupt the harmony of a business office. And it can destroy a marriage. You think the tongue isn't powerful? Kent Hughes said, The true test of a man's spirituality is not his ability to speak, as we are apt to think, but rather his ability to bridle his tongue. So what makes your religion worthwhile? Well, let's ask the opposite question, uh, right? What is it that makes your religion worthwhile then? Speech that is controlled. Speech that builds up the body of Christ and others. It's speech that gives grace to those who hear. It's speech that is true. Speech that bears witness to the glory of Christ. See, when the gospel penetrates your crusty exterior and your scaly heart, and when it possesses your entire soul, then your speech will be more reflective of its new ownership. Right? This is, again, a self-evaluation. I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. This is what James is saying. Take a look at your heart. What is your speech like? Does it reflect a change of allegiances? Second evidence that your allegiances have changed is a compassionate heart. Right? You have a controlled tongue, and secondly, you have a compassionate heart. Verse 27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their distress. So now James is, is by direct statement going to tell us what pure and undefiled religion is. And these two words combined, pure and undefiled, these two adjectives, they, they communicate pure religion as God uh, had made known to us in Christ. The idea here is perfect love for God and others. That's what's pure and undefiled. Uh, pure has the idea of cleansing one's inner motives, if you will. It's, it's taking a hard look at your motives and, and seeing what it is that, that drives you to do what you do. Are your motives pure? Are they born out of perfect, perfect love for God and others? Or are you motivated by self or love for the world? Undefiled has the idea of, of actually a lack of surface stains. It's unspotted is the idea. And the two words combined emphasize kind of the positive and negative sides of purity. As well as the call to internal and external purity. We're not talking about just the outside here. We're talking about the inside and the outside. 
Think about the false teachers. One of the characteristic trademarks of false teachers has always been that they take advantage of the vulnerability of the weak, the poor, and the disadvantaged, right? 1 Timothy 1, 3-16, 2 Timothy 3, 6. They usually do so in a licentious and perverse and immoral way. False teachers take advantage of the downtrodden. And any such religion that abuses the most helpless in society or overlooks them completely is what James calls impure and defiled. It's not what God intended. So James' point here is that God's heart is one of justice for the disadvantaged of society. See, the false shepherds of Israel, they took advantage of the widows and orphans rather than than vindicating them and executing justice. They cared more about their standing before the people, not the people themselves. How many of you have been under shepherds like that? They care more about their position and their standing before the congregation than they care about the sheep themselves. Look at the phrase in the text there, in the sight of our God and Father. See, those who have had their allegiances changed through the washing of regeneration, have hearts of compassion for the weak and disadvantaged. They're merciful. They're gracious. They're compassionate. They're long-suffering. They're like their God and Father who is in heaven. What is God like? Right? Slow to anger and abounding in loving-kindness. Gracious and compassionate, merciful. See, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Uh, widows and orphans represent the most helpless and vulnerable people of society. Right? They're the disadvantaged. They're the fatherless. They're the husbandless. And in those cases, God assumes the role of, of provider and protector to them. Right? He executes justice on their behalf. Uh, the verb here is a present infinitive, and, and the idea here is it communicates a habit that needs to be formed. It's not just a one-time visit. It's a continual care for, continual visitation, looking after them. That's why Moses had it I mean, it, Moses wrote it into the law. It was direct revelation from God, uh, Deuteronomy 24:17. You shall not pervert the justice due an alien or an orphan, nor take a widow's garment in pledge. You're supposed to take care of the widows and orphans of society. You're supposed to look after them. My heart is for them, God says. Isaiah 117, uh, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. This is his rebuke of Israel, 
right? The book of Isaiah. Isaiah 123, your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. They do not defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. Psalm 82.3, vindicate the weak and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and the destitute. What is God's heart? It's for the downtrodden. It's for the hurting. God has compassion on them. He's merciful. What should we be like? What should our hearts be like? Back to James. Notice notice the phrase, in their distress, that he tacked on there. When they're hurting the most, when they're in need of help, we're to step in and to provide care for them. Turn to the book of Acts, uh, Acts chapter 6. says in verse 1, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews, that's the Greek Jews, uh, the ones that were from Greek culture, uh, against the native Jews, that is, those who were native country Jews, uh, because of their widows, uh, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid hands on them. And notice verse 7, the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So, so what do you make of all that? Uh, first off, we see in verse 1 that the, the Hellenistic widows are being neglected. They're being overlooked, right? Pure and undefiled religion is what? Looking after the widows in their time of distress. Looking after the widows and orphans. So they, because they were being overlooked, uh, the apostles um, could not devote themselves to the ministry of prayer and the word that they felt was the priority. Uh, but they still had to care for the widows and orphans. And so they, they gathered men from among the congregation to take care of it so that they could do what God had um, called them to do. And notice that the apostles didn't just appoint 
warm bodies or men who could fog a mirror, right? They appointed qualified men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom. And the apostles even laid hands on them for this ministry. So was it a priority for the church to take care of the widows? It was enough of a priority to give some of their best and gifted men to it, right? Not just warm bodies. Also take note, uh, in verse 7, it was after this structural change within the leadership of the church that the word of God kept on spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase in Jerusalem. They, they prioritized what was a priority for God. And the church grew and multiplied because of it. And I show you that because I think this is an ironic scene since most churches now completely overlook senior saints in favor of having a blowing and going youth ministry or some type of uh, singles ministry or ministry directed to young marrieds um, and families. But, but what about the widows and the orphans? Completely neglect them. What about the vulnerable and the poor among us? Who's going to care for them? You know, this all bubbled up to the surface for me this week. I, I was, I've been watching the news and the recent earthquake in Turkey and Syria. 24,000 people estimated dead at this point. And that number is supposed to double. My heart is broken for these people who are just suffering the loss of everything. Absolutely everything. One, sh one photo showed a, a father sitting in the rubble holding his daughter's hand, waiting for somebody to come and take her out from under a slab of concrete. She had been crushed to death. He just sat there holding his dead daughter's hand. You know, I don't, at this point, I don't care if they're Muslim. You know, I, I don't care what their belief system is. My heart is broken for these people. And why? Why is my heart broken for these people? Because, because I love God and I love people who are made in His image. Right? And, and those who died are souls that have now been lost to eternity. You know, the last time I checked, Syria's population of Christians had declined from a high at one point of 10% to less than 5% since the country's been at war. Turkey is worse than that, 0.3% of the population identify as some form of Christianity. 0.3 of 1%. So what does that mean? Well, that means that potentially 48,000 
unbelievers have just been ushered into eternity. What, what does that do to your heart when you hear that? What about the people that are left living in the rubble? Are you compassionate towards those people? Do you feel anything at all for them? We knew a missionary in Kenya. His ministry, they started a ministry called the Ark. And what it was basically is all the children's parents who had died from HIV and such in in Africa there, uh, they took the kids in off the street and they started an orphanage. It was supposed to be a church planting ministry, but, but he saw that the greater need there was just to care for the children and the, the widows and the orphans. And so he opened up this ministry called the Ark. And I just saw a picture. One of those kids now, uh, 10 years later, is, is graduating high school and starting college. But he, he's a compassionate man, and he just could not watch the children suffer And because of that, he took in these children from the city and and the leaders of the city now allow him to do things in this city because they see that he's genuine. He's not taking advantage of the orphans and the widows. He's, He's ministering to them with compassion. See, my point here is this. This is meant as a test of the condition of your heart. Do you have a heart that's compassionate toward the afflicted and the fatherless? Only you know for sure. James says that your, your compassion should translate into faith-directed works. So the question is this. Has your faith made the jump from theory to practice? You say you believe, James, but what are you doing about it? You say you're convicted, Or you're compassionate in your heart? But what are you doing about it? That's what what James is after here. He he wants you to, to test your heart. To see what's down there. To see if you really believe what you say you believe. And are you willing to put things on the line to make it happen? So a controlled tongue, a compassionate heart. The third evidence of a changed allegiance is a clean life. Verse 27. Don't miss the importance of this last phrase. And to keep oneself unstained by the world. Pure and undefiled religion is this. To care for the widows and the orphans and to keep yourself unstained from the world. We should take note that James places one's duty to fellow man first and then follows up with duty to oneself, right? We should also take note of the fact that doing the word is based upon the word itself. 
Uh, James is not advocating ministry apart from the word. There are a lot of churches that, that do some sort of social ministries, but they're liberal and they don't even believe in the word of God. To them, it's just some sort of social justice or social relief. But love for the oppressed comes because you love God, you love his word, and, and you see people as created in the image of God. It literally reads here, unstained himself to keep from the world. Unstained, as I said, is the, is the idea of being unspotted. And from the world, this, this phrase is what is known as um, the ablative case in Greek. And, and basically the only reason I tell you that is because what it means is separation from. All right? The idea is to, to keep oneself separated from. And, and the phrase could be connected with the verb. The, the phrase from the world could be connected to keep yourself from, right? So keep yourself from the world. Or it could be connected to the word unspotted. So uh, one writer solved the grammatical problem here by saying it's both. <laughs> and I kind of I like that idea because then it would read something like this. Believers are to keep themselves from the world and to keep themselves unspotted from the world. Two different things. And it's a present infinitive again. And so the idea here is it communicates a habit. It's an ongoing thing. It's not just a one-time thing. You're continually keeping yourself, keep on keeping on, keep yourself from these things. And instead, you're supposed to keep on keeping on visiting widows and orphans and being separated from the world. Let's face it, we walk through Every day, a dirty, filthy, stinking, that's my wife's three adjectives, a dirty, filthy, stinking cesspool of a world every single day, right? Anybody managed to avoid getting splashed with crud so far? It's inevitable that you're going to get your clothes dirty eventually. If you play with the pigs, you're going to get dirty. All that is in the world, John tells us, is what? The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. The word all, as Thomas would say, is an exact number. So what's in the world? Nothing good. See, there's an intentionality here of, of separating yourself from the world and all of its evils. 
It doesn't just happen by osmosis. You have to keep working at it. You have to be diligent at it. You have to encourage others in it. As believers, we're supposed to be in the world, but what? Not of it. You've been called out of this darkness into his glorious light. This is a test. And James intends for you to check your heart here. How are you doing at keeping yourself from the evils of this world? How are you doing? Have you have you ruined all your play clothes? Are they all stained? Have you completely stained your garments with the filth of this world? Or have you made a practice of keeping yourself from the filth that is all around you? Yeah, I, I can't help but think of Paul's charge to Timothy here over in 1 Timothy 4. First Timothy four verses twelve to sixteen. He says, Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourselves an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. The charge is not just to be a good teacher, but to do what? Pay close attention to yourself, too, Timothy. Evaluate your own heart. Make sure you're walking closely with the Lord. Be an example to those around you. J.C. Ryle, uh, we're all familiar with that name probably, he says, The ways and fashions and amusements and recreations of the world have a continually decreasing place in the heart of a growing Christian. He does not condemn them as downright sinful, nor say that those who have anything to do with them are going to hell. He only feels that they have a constantly diminishing hold on his own affections and gradually seem smaller and more trifling in his eyes. Does the world get less important to you as a growing believer or does it continue to consume you in a greater way? It should become smaller and smaller and smaller in your eyes. I like this by George Sweeting. He says, The Christian life is a positive allegiance to Jesus Christ. 
It is becoming so occupied with him that the values and standards of the world around us have little influence. Can you say that? Only you know. Only you know. The gravitational pull of this world is strong, isn't it? It sucks us in. But where do your allegiances stand? Are you keeping yourself unstained by the world? Or is it splashing all over you every day? If the world does have a hold of you and your affections, or if you're without Christ this morning, I encourage you to make your relationship right with God through confession, repentance, and faith. You are stained. You can be made clean through the forgiveness that Christ offers. It is His cross that cleanses us from our stains and our sins. It is His righteousness that we need. We, we are, let's face it, in a righteousness deficit. We need the righteousness of Christ. We need His atoning sacrifice. We need His forgiveness to make us clean. First John tells us if we confess our sins, He's faithful to forgive us our sins and what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You can be made clean again. Your garments, as the song says, can be spotless. They can be white as snow. Or do you want the spotty garments? See, I, I have these shirts in my closet that I, I don't arrange my clothes by color or by style or anything. I arrange them by comfort level. And so the shirts that are really comfortable are over here. And my wife wants to throw them away. Because they're covered with spots and stains and holes. <laughs> but they're comfortable. Right? And that's how sin is for us. Sin is comfortable. Right? We go to it because it's our favorite. But it looks ugly. <laughs> it's not something you wear in public, right? It's all stained. It's full of holes. It's nasty garments. Why would you keep choosing, beloved, the garments that are stained and nasty and polluted when you could have nice, clean, new clothes? You could have the righteousness of Christ. Your sins could be forgiven. You could be made clean again. Why would you keep wearing the crud? Only you know. There's three evidences that your allegiances have changed. This is a self-evaluation. Your tongue is controlled. Your heart is compassionate. Your life is clean. This is, this is not a checklist of things you need to do to be a Christian. 
Don't, don't get this wrong, okay? That if I do this, this, and this, I'm a Christian. This is not a message about, about what you do. It's a message about who you are. Who are you? What is the condition of your heart? Have your affections changed? Do you love what God loves? Do you hate what God hates? Nobody can take this exam for you. There's no way to cheat on it. You are who you are before God. And in the dark of the night, when it's just you and God, you pass the test. That's the question.